Awaken podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hey friends, welcome to Awaken and our weekly gathering. Uh, however you find yourself here and however you're tuning in, as one of the pastors here, if I'm being totally honest, I want to say I'm really grateful for your presence. Uh, I was thinking this week about those of you who call Awaken Home and have invested your lives in this community and continue to invest your resources and your whatever you can in this season that we're in into the life of this community. And as on behalf of our staff and our leadership team, I want to say like a deep heartfelt thank you. Thank you for believing in this church. Thank you for believing in the mission and the vision and the values that make up this community. Um, we're just so grateful. Uh, as a staff, we're continuing to work hard to adapt to this reality we live in and um, attempting, we're gathering around a proverbial table trying to figure out ways to, uh, to offer you opportunities to engage as community members that are um, natural, but also like in step with the spirit as we sense God's spirit around us and uh, in our community. And so I want to say like one, uh, keep, stay tuned for some opportunities that are, that are coming. Um, It's July the 15th today, which means like we're kind of halfway through summer, hate to be the bearer of that news. And so as we think about fall and what that looks like, uh, be, be on the lookout for some new opportunities um, to engage in the life of our community. Um, with that, I want to just say before we get going, part of that delay uh, in, in sharing some of those things is related to some news that I received this last week um, on Saturday while we were gone on vacation. Uh, I received news that my dad had passed away. Um, he had been in the hospital for the past two weeks, a little over two weeks, um, battling COVID and complications related to that, and uh, he lost. And so um, I received that news on Saturday morning while we were, ironically, uh, I was sitting on a houseboat in, uh, on Namakin Lake in Voyagers National Park where my dad used to take us as kids, Um, which was, I don't know if there's any good place you'd receive that news, but um, I found it to be a sweet moment amidst really difficult circumstances. Uh, And so I share that with you all because as a pastor, you share about your life and you all know me in ways that other people don't. And so uh, I felt like it would be appropriate for you to hear that from me and not somebody else. Um, I would hate for you to four months down the road say, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Um, And so uh, the Witham family is doing as well as we can. I feel like we have what we need. Um, to walk this out and to grieve and process and um, feel very cared for and supported by our friends and by people in this community. So uh, I want to say thank you for that. Uh, There's, of course, no way to segue out of that, but uh, a couple of things you should know about things that are happening in the life of our community. Uh, we, We have tried to no avail to find a permit either in our parking lot to have an outdoor worship gathering or in any park around here. And so uh, unfortunately, we're not able to gather uh, in any kind of public space or outdoor space because we just can't get permits to do it. Uh, so unfortunately, those dates that we had talked about just at this point are not happening. Uh, so I wanted to let you know we're, we're working on that or we were working on that, but just have not been able to find any way to do that. So 
that is news you should know. Also, the meditation workshop uh, that David Christensen's leading on July 23rd is still open. So if you're interested in that, um, you can either sign up by the Awaken Weekly or email him directly at deeperucoaching at gmail.com. And David will connect with you on that. And then last but not least, we mentioned last week that there's a supply drive that Annie and Mike uh, Vangstad and Berglund are leading and sort of spearheading. Uh, and so on the website, all the details for that are there. They'll be open from 12 to 5 on July 21st. That's this coming Tuesday after you will have gotten this message um, on Sunday. And you can uh, find out what is being accepted for donations as well as if you want to volunteer uh, and who the different organizations that we're partnering with are. So go to the website for that. And um, with that, I'll invite Mandy, our Kids Community Director. She's going to lead us in an imaginative prayer exercise, and then Mel and the team, of which there is a bunch of them, which is very cool, uh, will lead us in song. So, Mandy. All right. Hello, weekend. Hello, kids. I hope you guys had a good week. I want to remind you something I said last week. I would love to hear from you. So kids, tell me what you're doing this summer. Send a letter, send an email, call me. I would love to hear from you. So today, like Micah said, I'm going to read a prayer. Our prayer today is written by Jared Patrick Boyd from his book called Imaginative Prayer. Before I do that, kids, I want you to first take a couple minutes and talk about prayer with those who you're doing church with. So maybe answer a couple questions. What is prayer and why do we pray? This past year in kids' community, we spent a month talking about prayer. We learned that there are lots of different ways to pray. Do you remember some of them, kids? Prayer is a time to connect with God and that can happen many different ways. Some people like to talk to connect with God and some like to listen. Some sing and some are silent. Some people close their eyes and some people just want to look around and see God's nature. And some even create to connect with God. Today's imaginative prayer is taken from Luke 10. It's a story we get to close your eyes and just listen. Let the words draw a picture in your mind. As I read, I want you to think about where you see hear, or sense the Holy Spirit. And then at the end, take some time to talk about it with your family. Kids and adults, make yourself comfortable. Find a place where you have the least amount of distractions and allow your body to be still and your voice to be off while I read this story. Close your eyes and let's take a few deep breaths together. God, I pray that you will release our imagination, help us to hear you speak during this time together. We open our hands to you and we open our ears to you. Imagine that you live in a village in a distant country. This is not a time when people played video games or drove in cars, but when people rode horses and children played barefoot on dusty streets. I want you to imagine this is a time when soldiers dressed in armor and carried swords and shields. It's a time when lands were ruled by kings and queens and war often occurred. In fact, the land that you live in and the village that you live in has just had a war. Imagine what it would be like to be a boy or a girl during a war. 
There is some big news in the town square today. Everyone is gathered in the center of your village to hear the announcement that the war is over. But your king has died in battle. You remember the king well. You remember, you remember when he left your village on a giant horse. He was dressed in fine clothing and wore a purple scarf. He carried a sword for battle. He carried a shield. He rode on his horse, followed by lots of men, and he seemed very strong. He was covered in armor. Picture this king in your mind. Try to remember what it was like to see him leave the village with the other men to go into battle. People are saddened that this king will not be coming back. They announce that a new king will be coming sometime soon, but nobody knows when this will be. Everyone leaves the center of town and goes about their business. Everyone is happy that the war is over, but everyone seems a little anxious to meet the new king. What would it be like to wait to meet the new king? What will he be like? Will he be kind? Will he be gentle? Will he be strong? Will he be generous? Or will he be mean and harsh? Will he treat others poorly? Imagine now that you are walking along a road outside of the town. There aren't a lot of people who travel this road. It's very quiet. You notice from a distance that there is a man on the side of the road and he has been badly beaten. Someone has hit him on the head and stolen his money. He is badly hurt. You are a little bit afraid to get too close because your mom and dad have told you not to talk to strangers. This is a stranger and he does not look well. You notice that some other men see this man lying on the side of the road, but they do nothing. They cross to the other side of the road so that they don't have to see the beaten man up close. No one has stopped to help this man. You begin to wonder what you should do. Should you run for help? Should you try to help the man yourself? And then you notice that another man is coming down the road. He is traveling all by himself and is riding a donkey. Most men ride on horses. A man riding on a donkey looks a little bit funny to you. You wonder what sort of man would ride to town on a donkey. The man on the donkey notices the man who has been beaten on the side of the road. You watch him as he gets off his donkey and kneels beside the beaten man. He takes water from his backpack and rinses the man's wounds. He gives the man something to drink and something to eat. He takes a towel from his backpack and gently wipes the man's face. Then he uses the towel as a pillow, placing it under his head. You watch the man go back to his donkey and you wonder if he is leaving. Don't leave, you think to yourself. And he doesn't leave. He found a bandage in another bag. You watch as the man gently bandages the hurt man's wounds. He is so kind. And he's strong. He lifts the man from the ground and carries him to his donkey. You watch the man as he walks with the beaten man on the donkey 
to the nearest motel. You follow him and see that he pays for a room and food and medicine for the beaten man. And then he leaves, riding the donkey into town. You follow him there too, wondering who this kind man is. As you head into town, you see the man who was riding on a donkey and kindly and gently caring for the man on the side of the road, now sitting on the king's throne with a crown on his head. This is your king. They say his name is Jesus. Jesus is the king who came to undo the power of death. Jesus is the king who came to defeat the power of sin. Jesus is the king who came to defeat the power of the accuser. Jesus is a faithful king, even when we don't have faith. We have life with God through the faithfulness of Jesus the King. Amen. This story reminds us of the love and forgiveness that God showed and continues to show. Love and forgiveness also shows up in something we call humility. Jesus had power, but he oftentimes didn't use that power over people. Instead, his authority was shown through humility, through love, and through forgiveness. I want to challenge you guys this week to take some time each day and think about this prayer. Maybe reread Luke 10. And think about the ways that you're seeing God's love and forgiveness throughout your day. Maybe it's when a stranger holds a door open for you, or maybe it's someone you really love comforting you when you're sad or hurt, just like Jesus did for this man on the side of the road. I want you to talk about those things with those in your home. And I also want you to think about where you can be showing love and forgiveness. So my hope for you this week is for you to hold these thoughts of love and forgiveness, humility and kindness. Remember this example of Jesus and take time to find more examples of the humility of Jesus and try to follow his example. I love you guys and I miss you. Thank you so much, Mandy. Um, before we sing another song together, let's sing this one, uh, the song of blessing over our kids. as we worship together.
the next song um, that we're going to play for you um, is probably one you haven't heard before. Um, you'll still have the lyrics and the song lyrics little link that you get in the Awaken Weekly every week. So if you want to try to sing along, you totally can. Um, it's a song that I found just recently by a, an artist named Lori Chaffer. And when I heard it, I was like, we need to hear this song right now. It just has a lot of really important words, I think, for this moment that we're all living in, in um, our country specifically. Um, so uh, it's called Come Let Us Reason Together. A lot of important quotes and thoughts, um, especially from the prophet Isaiah, if you want to look that up uh, later. Um, but just encouraging us to kind of learn how to reason together, learn how to live in unity right now. Um, so here it is.
Well, this morning we continue our series called Lost in Translation. And today we're going to make our way towards maybe a more traditional Lost in Translation passage, maybe one that you're more uh, familiar with if you've been with us when we've done this series. And I want to spend some time exploring one of the critiques that's often leveled at the Bible, which is essentially like, how do I trust the Bible when there are so many discrepancies or uh, differences or even contradictions in the Bible? Uh, thank you to those of you who responded. I, I offered a little opportunity on Facebook, like what are some of the ways or what are some of the things you've heard or even that you've, you've said about like the struggle that there is sometimes to believe or take seriously this thing that we call the Bible, this book, 66 books. Um, so we're in the wisdom literature of scripture, Ketuvim in the Hebrew Bible, and that includes First and Second Chronicles, which holds within it one of the most, uh, one of the largest collections of discrepancies in the Bible insofar as it differs from another uh, offering or report from a historical event in the books of Samuel and Kings. So a bit more on that in a minute. First, I wanna talk about why we're heading in this direction. So I've been a pastor for over 20 years now, and the more I teach the Bible, the more I love it, the more I, I value it, and um, the, the, uh, the depth and wisdom that I find in it is just enriching to me and, and my own journey. Um, Awaken as a church is a part of the Evangelical Covenant Church, and so if you didn't know that, uh, the covenant finds its roots in the pietist tradition or the, uh, in, among the pietists. And one of the commitments of the pietists was that scripture, this book, would be at the center of our life together. And I'm not talking about like your sort of um, garden variety evangelical commitment to the Bible, right? The Bible is the word of God. It's in, inerrant and in, in, inspired and, and uh, infallible. But the old covenanters used to talk about the Bible as the altar where we meet the living God. So for them, this was a, like a living, dynamic, um, like beautiful relationship. Uh, wouldn't be described as rigid or dogmatic, but one that was alive. And so um, the Bible, I believe, and the, the, old, the old covenanters and, and we as a church uh, believe that it's one of the primary means by which the divine God reveals itself to us as humans. And so therefore, as a community, we've said that we've made a commitment that the life and teachings, the death and resurrection of this Jesus found in the Bible would be the very center of our life together. It's the well that we gather around. So instead of erecting fences and patrolling them about religion, um, the Bible bears witness to the life and teachings and death and resurrection of Jesus, and insofar as it does, we are committed to it because we believe that that brings life. That's the well that we want to gather around. And so it's important for me and for us to tackle topics like this because um, who doesn't have questions about this book? Who hasn't at some point in their life been skeptical about some of the claims that this book is making? And why should I believe them? Like some guy, usually, with a far too expensive suit says, this is the word of the Lord and you should believe it. Like, okay, but why? Like, why is it important or why is it authoritative? Uh, and maybe you don't have those questions. I don't know. I certainly do. And I'm guessing if you don't, some of your friends might or your family members or your coworkers. So what do you do with them? How do you reconcile? Uh, how do you be intellectually honest with the questions you have of the Bible and still approach it as this beautiful altar where one might meet the living God? That is the question of Lost in Translation. So today, we're gonna to look at a, a, a book, First and Second Chronicles, that have very clear and obvious discrepancies when you hold them up against another set of books. 
So let's get to it, right? Stop talking about it, Mike, and just do it. Uh, so I want to look at First and Second Chronicles, and I want to sort of um, hold them in light of, or as opposed to, Samuel and Kings, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Now, if you didn't know this about the Bible, it developed over time, and early on in the Hebrew Bible, Samuel wasn't Samuel; it was First, Second, Third, and Fourth Kings, or. First and Second Samuel was First and Second Kings, and then there was Third and Fourth Kings. So it was all one account, and it really telling that, or, or on the same subject matter, which was the history of Israel, its kings, and the kingdom of Israel. So, and Chronicles is also a story about the history of Israel and its kings and its kingdom. So you have two stories, two accounts of the same historical event, and as we will see they often differ, sometimes in minor ways and other times in major ways. Um, so what do we do with those? So what I wanna do is I wanna look at three examples in Chronicles that differ from the, the examples in Samuel and Kings uh, to sort of like highlight this critique that's often leveled to the Bible, like how do I take it seriously or trust it when there are these discrepancies or these differences? I wanna show you those. And then I wanna offer briefly just like what I think is a really good reason for the those discrepancies or those differences. Um, I want to argue that actually that's part of the beauty of the Bible. That's why I love it so much. And then I want to turn and sort of land the plane and, and look at a few of the implications. And really what I want to do is I want to be very clear about what I'm inviting you to and what I'm inviting you to say, to leave behind or to not engage anymore, which is in some ways what I'll call the literalist commitment to the Bible. Um, I, I think we'll talk more about this in a bit, but like that, the, the literalist commitment to the Bible and what I mean by that is the source of many of our problems, in my opinion. So I wanna sort of end with that and try to offer a way forward and, and, and a clear invitation to you as people who come to this church. Um, so let's get to it. Three examples from Chronicles. The first of which is uh, the prophet Nathan and his words to David about the king, the kingdom of Israel and uh, and and the temple of Israel. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, they tell the same story. And that is the story of the prophet Nathan who comes to David to tell him about what God has promised. He spends some time talking about uh, the fact that God didn't need a structure early on in Israel's history. He was in the tabernacle and they moved it around. He talks about the Lord promising to make David's name great among the nations. He talks about uh, God's promise to provide Israel with a homeland, a promised land, that Yahweh would uh, raise up David's next, or son Solomon to be the next king of Israel, and then that, that uh, Solomon would build the temple for Israel. And then we read this in Samuel. So here's the first account. But my love, this is God speaking, my love will never be taken away from him, Solomon, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from, uh, or who I, who I removed from before you. And then God says, your house, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So this is God speaking through the prophet Nathan to David saying, essentially God saying, your house, your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever as it's recorded in the book of Samuel. Now the same historical event is recorded this way in the book of Chronicles. I will be his father, God speaking about Solomon, and he will be my son. I won't take my love from him as I took it from your predecessor. And then here's the difference. I, God, will set him over my house and my kingdom forever and his throne will be established. So in the book of Samuel, the prophet is saying that God speaks and he's saying that your house, your line, your kingdom, David, will be established. But in Chronicles, 
the chronicler makes it very clear that it's God saying, my house and my uh, my kingdom will be established forever. Now, you may think that's a really small discrepancy. You know, and one is saying your house and your kingdom, and then the other is God saying my house and my kingdom. But actually, we're going to come back to this. And I think that the small discrepancy in those two accounts actually is the juice. It's the, it's the thing that makes the whole thing like, like pop. Uh, and I want to argue that the literalist interpretation can only minimize those differences and actually misses the whole point. So that's one example. Here's another example. The tone and tenor towards David and Solomon in the two different accounts. So there's not one verse that captures this reality because it develops over Samuel and Kings and over the books of First and Second Chronicles. But be that as it may, as you read the two different accounts of, of David and Solomon in Samuel and Kings and then of David and Solomon in Chronicles, you get a very different sense of who David and Solomon were and what their purpose was. Uh, in Kings and Samuel, there's a very real and raw portrayal of the kings. You get, yes, their triumphs and their glories, but you get their absolute mistakes and missteps as well. Uh, Bathsheba, right? Um, the hunger for power that exists among the ranks in, in Israel. The, the transition of power from David to Solomon is a total circus in First Kings. Uh, we talk about like the first 365 days of a presidency sets the tone of an administration. First Kings chapter two opens as Solomon as the king in this first act is to kill three uh, military leaders and exile the priest, which he and his father David had basically like mapped out at the end of First Kings chapter one. So you get a very real and raw portrayal of the kings, their ups and their downs. On the contrary, in Chronicles, you only get the glory which, who, I mean, if, if, if somebody ever does my, like, you know, the life of Micah, I want it to be the person who wrote Chronicles. Because this, this person only tells the most notable accomplishments. Bathsheba, nowhere to be found in Chronicles. Like David's worst moment in his life doesn't even talk about it at all. Um, he doesn't talk about, like, the fact that there are these warring factions among David's own family and, and closest allies and military men. He doesn't talk about it at all. In fact, he says that, like, you know, everybody's supporting David and Solomon in Chronicles. One author, Ray Dillard, says it this way. The chronicler portrays David and Solomon as glorious, obedient, all-conquering figures who enjoy not only divine blessing, but total support of the people as well. He presents us not only with David and Solomon of history, but also the David and Solomon of his, the chronicler's, messianic expectation. So the chronicler is doing something different with the material. So as it relates to David and Solomon, between Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, you have two very different slants on history. It's the same historical event as if it were being reported by CNN and Fox News. Like, have you done that lately? Where, you know, coronavirus, just take that for example. You turn on one and it's like, this is real, everybody. People are dying and if we don't figure out, if people don't start wearing masks, like, it's gonna get worse. In fact, I just read an article today. In eight weeks, if everybody wears a mask, like the pandemic will likely be very much under control. And then you turn, you flip the channel and it's like, masks are ridiculous. Nobody should wear them. The government's trying to take away your liberties. Don't listen to them. Same historical event, two totally different stories. Kings and Chronicles, which is it? That's the, sermon, that's the title of my sermon, by the way. So you have the prophet coming to David. You have the tone and tenor of David and Solomon. And then one last example, you have the transition of power from David to Solomon. I mentioned this earlier. In 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2, you have the transition of power from David to Solomon. 
also recorded in 1 Chronicles 28 and 29. And in, in Kings, it's, it's told in 1 Kings, David is old and feeble and cold. Like, what a weird way to open the, the, the story of the kings. It literally says, now David, King David was old, advanced in years, and they put covers on him because he could not get warm. <laughs> what a king, right? And so they went and found a beautiful virgin named Abigail the Shunammite. Uh, no, it was Abishag. Um, okay. Uh, and Abigail, Abishag the Shunammite who would lie with the king to keep him warm. Now later it goes on to say it was a platonic relationship. There was no monkey business happening there. It was just to keep the king warm. But then it immediately goes to like the power grabbing son of David whose name is Adonijah. He's like gathering factions of military men, people who are loyal to his cause, basically like stealing the kingdom or the kingship from David, the feeble and aging old man, like right under his nose. It's actually like an episode of Game of Thrones, like all these people warring to sit on the throne that will rule the seven kingdoms. Bathsheba comes and tells David what's happening. David's like, oh my gosh, you can see like an old man, like, oh, what's happening? He gathers, he gathers the king, the high priest, gets him down to the temple, anoints Solomon with oil, makes sure that he's the king, which then of course puts Adonijah on notice because he's a, uh, an enemy combatant of the state at that point. And then uh, it ends, king, 1 Kings chapter two ends with David and Solomon creating a hit list of all the people Solomon should kill as soon as he becomes king. That's the, that's the account of the transition of power. George Washington did not take notes on that one. I've, who, who hasn't watched uh, Hamilton recently? Um, so good. I have so many thoughts about that, but I won't go into it because it's far afield from the point I'm trying to make. Um, but First Chronicles tells a totally different story. Um, chapter 28, uh, it begins, you know, the, like how the Lord has revealed to David that Solomon would be the king and that he would build the temple and that everybody would help and all the people would be faithful. Chapter 28 ends, here are the divisions of the priests and Levites for all the service of the house of God and every willing craftsman will be with you, Solomon, and all manner of workmanship for every kind of service. Also, all the leaders and all the people will be completely at your command. That's how First Chronicles chapter 28 ends. 29 starts, Solomon builds the temple with all these faithful men of Israel who are on his side and supporting him. And then Solomon sat on the throne of the king of the Lord as king instead of David his father and prospered and all of Israel obeyed him. All the leaders of the mighty men, the sons of King David, except for Adonijah, but we're not going to mention him, submitted themselves to King Solomon. So the Lord exalted Solomon exceedingly in the sight of Israel, bestowed him such royal majesty as had not been seen in any king in the history of Israel. Two totally different accounts, CNN and Fox. What do you do with that? So you have Nathan coming to David, you have the tone and tenor of David and Solomon, then you have the power, the transition of power from David to Solomon. So why are they different? Briefly, and if you were paying attention last week to Jenna's sermon, um, she kind of tipped my hand without knowing it. Uh, first, the books of Samuel, which by the way, was a fantastic sermon. If you haven't listened to it, you should. Very, very well done. We're, we're so lucky. Sometimes when like uh, a church, you know, the, the person who preaches the most leaves town, everyone's like, oh my gosh, Yonsville, like whoever's gonna preach this week and no one comes. But seriously, Jenna is fantastic. Mel is fantastic. We have a very deep bench. So pay attention and listen to that sermon. For, uh, first, the book of Samuel and Kings, right? These two over here, they're written pre 
and during the exile. So you have to remember, Israel as a nation, they're God's chosen people. They've been promised a land flowing with milk and honey for prosperity, for peace, to be like, you know, uh, the, the, the leader among the nations. They're God's people. But then they find themselves being carted away by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And whenever anyone suffers, if they're human, they always ask the question, why? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to us? Why are we suffering? We're God's people for crying out loud. We are the nation of Israel. This cannot be true. The entire book of Job is trying to answer that question. Why is Job suffering? Which the answer never comes, which is why Job is so frustrating, but we're gonna actually get to that in a few weeks when we do Job. It's no different for historiographers who write or compile Samuel and Kings. Part of the answer to their question, why are we in exile, is the kings who have led us, David and Solomon, which is why they tell the story the way that they do. It's why they don't leave out the bad stuff. Because part of the reason they're in exile is because Solomon, for crying out loud, well, let's start with David. David and the whole Bathsheba thing. That was a debacle of epic proportion. You got a guy, a king, for crying out loud, who sleeps with somebody that's not his wife, whose husband is like a, a, a commander in his military fighting a war on his behalf. Then he brings him home to try to get his, to, to sleep with her. He won't because of his honor. Can't make it up. David sends him back to battle on the front lines to ensure his death. I mean, this is really, really low. Solomon, he becomes king. He has a brief moment of, uh, of, of wisdom when he asks for wisdom in chapters three and four of 1 Kings, but then he goes on to marry hundreds of wives, makes political and, and, and military alliances with foreign kingdoms. He invites their gods into the temple of Israel for Pete's sake. Uh, not only that, he endorses slave labor to build the kingdom of Israel. By the time kings ends, he looks more like the Pharaoh than he does a, a, a king of Yahweh. So the writers of Samuel and Kings have no interest in saving their reputation because they're part of the reason why they're in exile. Now the book of Chronicles is written post-exile. So the Israelites come back and you have someone who is trying to tell the story of the past in a way that actually has a future. The chronicler is writing an account of history, but it's not history as we might know it or think about it. He's casting a vision of the future of a previously oppressed and exiled people, which is why he starts with nine chapters of names. Pete Enns uh, has written a number of books on interpreting and reading the Bible. He has a great podcast called uh, The Bible for Normal People. Highly recommend it. He says this in an article on Chronicles. Chronicles, although undeniably written as an account of history, is not a journalistic, objective, blow-by-blow account so his readers can know what happened back then. And he is certainly not writing to distort the past by whitewashing it. The chronicler is presenting an ideal David and Solomon to cast a vision for the future. Chronicles is no less the word of God because of its reshaping of history to make this theological and pastoral point. In fact, rather... Reshaping the past to speak to the present is precisely what this author is inspired to do. The inference being inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, to write that way. So the writers of Kings and Chronicles, they're reporting the same events, but they're doing it for very different purposes and from different perspectives, which is exactly why we have four Gospels, four different accounts of Jesus, one leaves one story out, one adds it. Matthew's writing to Jews, so he starts with the line of David 
to say Jesus is a Jew. Luke and Mark have no care for that. Why? Because they're writing to Gentiles. It's the same reason we have four Gospels, because they're writing from different perspectives, and each author has an intent. And when we sort of, like, um, dehumanize the writers of Scripture and say it's all inspired by the Word of God, and we just read it literally, and we look for the plain meaning of the text, we rob the text of its beauty, of its, of its story, of its personality, which is part of why the Bible's so beautiful, because it's doing something theological. The writer of Chronicles is trying to make a theological point. Now, let me see if I can land this plane. Um, many, lost in translation is fun for a host of reasons, right? We, we find bizarre stories about flint knives and foreskins and we try to make sense of them. Okay, that's a good time. I think it is. But more than that, in, inevitably, it becomes a conversation around how do you read the Bible and how do you interpret the Bible? And many of us, and now I'm going to be specific as to what I'm inviting you towards. Many of us, myself included, grew up in evangelicalism. And some of us, even a fundamentalist version of evangelicalism. And with that comes a particular reading of the Bible. One that is highly, uh, highly values literalism and inerrancy and infallibility. By literalism, like we read the Bible uh, void of our perspective. We're like scientists in a lab. All we need to do is find the facts and the plain meaning of the text and then apply it. But everybody knows you can't do that. I've said it before. There is no view from nowhere. So the moment you pick up this book, you add your perspective. You read it through your lens because there is no view from nowhere. So a plain reading of the Bible is a fallacy. No one can do it. So if you hear people say that, your, your hackles, not your hackles, but your caution flag should go up. So I grew up in a, in a version of evangelicalism that valued literals, literalism and inerrancy. By inerrancy, it has no errors. But like the book of Joshua ends saying one thing and then the book of Judges opens saying the complete opposite of that. How is that not error in this framework? While I understand and I appreciate the heart and the sentiment behind some of those commitments to like a rigid or uh, inerrant, infallible reading of the Bible, you don't have to read very far in the Bible to find yourself in a sticky wicket, as my grandpa Chaz used to say, because the Bible contradicts itself all over the place. There are inconsistencies and discrepancies like the one I've just exposed to you this morning. And as one of your pastors, one, of, one who's most responsible for teaching at Awaken, I want to invite you away from a rigid literalism where you come to the Bible in that way. And I want to invite you to a dynamic and living relationship with the Bible. One that values the Bible no less, I would argue, values the Bible more because it's allowing the Bible to be what it was meant to be and not asking it to be something it was never meant to be. Precisely because what the Bible intends to do is something theological. And I'm asking you not to, not to make it bear the weight that it was never intended to bear. Enns goes on to make this point more beautifully than I, so I'll just quote him. He says, some contemporary fundamentalists and evangelical readers approach the Bible with the conviction that its depiction of history, what we just read in Chronicles and Kings, must be literally accurate. Otherwise, the Bible is not God's word because it has error. Chronicles clearly cannot bear this burden. That doesn't mean history doesn't matter. It means that historiography, the recording of history, is more involved than literalism allows. So when you come to a passage like Chronicles, passages like Chronicles and Kings, and you're reading it literally, 
You ask it to bear the weight of our understanding of history and fact reporting, which it never intended to do. People always say like, well, Genesis, you know, was the Bible created in seven literal days? And they go to Genesis, to which I say, the, the writer of Genesis had no care about how many days it took God to make the world. So don't use that as an argument to say it was made in seven literal days. The, it, whoever wrote that didn't give two didn't care about that question. See, it's anachronism. Like, that's a question that's just a, a mistake of time. So when you ask the Bible to do something it wasn't intended to do, of course you're going to get bad answers, right? Krista Tippett, what does she say? Uh, questions beget answers of their kind. So if you ask a bad question in the Bible, you're likely to get a bad answer. So let's start with some good questions, people. <sighs> When you ask it to bear the, the weight of history, Chronicles, which it wasn't intended to do, you actually, the only option you have if you take the literalist view is to minimize the differences and you actually take away its power because the, the little differences of you or your kingdom instead of me and my kingdom is exactly the point Chronicles is trying to make. So when you, you can only minimize those differences if you look at it literally. And I'm saying that, that game is just up doesn't bear any fruit. The chronicler is making a deeply theological point by telling the history the way he does. In Samuel, written before exile, the author of Samuel is still convinced in the Davidic line because they haven't been put in exile yet. So he says, you, David, and your kingdom. But the chronicler knows that game's over. And if we stick with it, then where's our confidence? Where's our hope for the future? So he changes it. Why? Because the hope is not in David, not in Solomon, not in any earthly king, but in Yahweh. So he says, me and my kingdom on behalf of God. If you go literal, you have to minimize that point and you miss the whole boat of Chronicles. Which I think would be terribly tragic. So don't do that. My invitation to you this morning in this episode of Lost in Translation is to approach the Bible and read it for what it is. A means by which, a means by which the divine intends to reveal itself to you and to me. A, a, like a portal, a mechanism, a, an avenue, um, something that's used to do something else. That's what the Bible has always been. This is why the Covenanters, which I'm so grateful for in so many ways, would say this is the altar, one of the altars, of which there are a number of, right? Richard Rohr says that creation itself was the first revelation, the first word of God. One of the ways that the divine reveals itself to you and to me. It's a theological collection of the accounts of humanity interacting with a God who is very much alive and active and not static written by humans, inspired by the Spirit. We can say that out loud. Over the course of time, with different agendas and different perspectives, it is a document that is living and breathing and active and still being used by God to interact with humanity. It's a canon, a rule, by which the people of God can um, discern how to live faithfully in the world. One of the ways that we can discern and live faithfully as Christians in the world is the Scriptures. It does do that for us. That's why it's so valuable. 
It's a document that you can interrogate and question and rant at and be angry with and maybe even have a, a be skeptical of and still love and value and appreciate and hold it with high esteem. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Ultimately, my friends, I'm inviting you not into a relationship with the Bible, but with, into a relationship with the living God, whom, who was made known to us in Jesus, which this book bears witness to and attests to, so the life and teachings, the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, whom is the manifestation, the, the, the icon, the representation, the revelation of the divine, this book bears witness to that story. And insofar as it does, it is true and reliable. Insofar as it does, it is trustworthy and, and, and authoritative in the sense that it, it speaks to the things that are true and real about the human experience and what it means to be in relationship or not with God and each other and the world we live in. That's why it has power. That's where its authority lies, not because it's the word of God. So what we know most clearly and definitively about the divine is what we know in Jesus. And this tells that story. That's why it's the well that we continue to gather around. So friends, let us gather together. Let us reason together what it means to be faithful, what it means to be the people of God, what it means to be a person who follows this Jesus. Let's let the Bible do what it intended to do, which is to speak deeply and theologically about the nature of the divine, what that God is like. I would say that's what Genesis is about, not how many days it took to make the earth. What it means to be human, what it means to live in, in relationship with each other, what it means to be at peace with our souls, with God, with each other. Let's let the Bible speak to those things and not ask it to do things it never intended to do. That's why I love Lost in Translation. That's why I love the Bible. That's why I'm sitting here today. Pray with me, if you will. God, as we take a few moments of silence, I trust and believe that you are here, right now in this moment. And you have this weird relationship with time in that whatever that moment is right now for the person listening, it's this moment. So, holy God, do what you will. To the degree that we can, we surrender to you in this moment. For the hundredth time, for the first time. Maybe that's one small move. Maybe that's just like unlocking the door of which there are a dozen deadbolts, but it's one of them. We unlock it. And we say, with the courage that we can, be present to us, speak to us, be near, touch us, heal us. So in the next few moments of silence, God, I, I ask that you would do what you have been doing through this book for thousands of years, which is to make yourself known to us.
we're going to turn and make our way to the table, which for me is, has become this beautiful reminder of the simplicity of what we call the good news. As many questions as I have about the Bible and as I have about COVID and the world that we live in and why and how and there is this moment when Jesus just takes two things that are totally normal, bread and wine, and he tells this story that is life-changing. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, which is just flour, water, and yeast, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) And he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you, which will be broken for you. And whenever you eat of it, remember me. Remember the things I've taught you. Remember, like, remember the tone of my voice. Remember the way I looked at you and I looked at the outsider and the one who was on the edges and the marginalized. Remember how I treated them and how I went after them and cared for them when no one else would. Remember those things about me when you eat this. And in the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it and he said, this this is a, a, a new covenant. You know this language of covenant where two parties make, uh, they enter into an agreement together. And God has done this with you before, with Abram and with Noah and with others. But like, this is a new one and I'm involved and it's written in my blood. It's secured by my blood. And so whenever you drink of this cup, like remember that the divine has moved toward you that it's God who moves first and, and always. Don't ever forget that whenever you drink of this. And so this table, it's the table of the Lord. It's the table of Jesus. It's not mine. It's not the churches. It's not the popes. It's not some religious leader. It's not the synods. It's not the powerful. It's not the men. It's Jesus. And so... It's made ready for those of you who love God and want to love God more. So come, you who have faith or just a little bit, or maybe maybe you've been here a hundred times, maybe you haven't been here for a really long time, maybe you've never been here before, but come. If you've tried to follow God, if you've tried and failed to follow God, come. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. So Come and eat of them, not because I'm inviting you, but because the resurrected Christ, Jesus, invites you to come and be fed and to be reminded that as you pour yourself out for healing and hope and love in the world, that it is, it is the intention of God to do the same for you over and over and over again. So as you take the bread and eat of it, hear these words. This is the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat, my friends. And as you take the cup, 
hear these words. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink, my friends. As we close, Mike's going to lead us in a song that Who wrote this song? I mean, it's one of my favorites. And it is, it has long been a prayer of mine for this church from the moment I heard it, that the lost and the weary and the travelers would find, that they would find a light that would lead them home. And I I believe that light to be this person of Jesus, this God made known to us in Christ. And that that light would, would lead you that it would be the anchor when the wind blows, that it would be the the harbor when you need to get out and be safe, that it would be uh, the North Star that leads you on the adventure into the world for the healing and hope and love and forgiveness that Jesus comes and offers to, to you and to me. So may you find a light that would lead you home. to guide you home.
to these friends that I get to do this with to the friends that you don't ever see who are in this room grateful for this church for you for the way that you courageously step out in faith for the purpose of hope and love doing the thing that you can do whatever that looks like. So I hope that today is an encouragement to you. I hope that you leave ready to face the world and whatever it brings, like with shoulders square and feet on the ground with confidence and hope for the future. I hope that our role today is a bit more like the chronicler than Kings and Samuel and that the paint, the picture that we're painting is a picture of hope and of a future one where we find God at work in places we didn't expect, where there is light that we do find and it does lead us to light and hope and love and forgiveness and healing. God. So, Holy Spirit, would you do that work? Take what has happened and do, do with it only what you can do. Know that the Lord blesses you and keeps you. The Lord lifts up his countenance to you and his face is towards you. The Lord's lifting up his countenance to you and giving you peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and the church said together with joy and hope in their hearts. Amen. Grace and peace. See you next week. www.facebook.com backslash awaken community or on Twitter by awaken community see you next time